For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, for I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to turn to God's word now from Romans chapter 7, verse 14 following. Well, let's jump in at the deep end. Uh, and I want to put a question to you, a confronting question this morning. So if a video of your past week as a Christian was sort of up on the screen behind me, uh, what, what would we all see? So as you reflect on that, how often, for instance, did you betray the faithful love and commitment of your Heavenly Father by promoting your own sovereignty over his. Um, How many times did you, in a sense, make mockery of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to deal with your sins by choosing to walk back into the very sin that Jesus died for to deal with? How often did that happen? How often did you ignore the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit to express the mind of Christ in favor of expressing your own mind and your own wisdom? Uh, And here we are this morning, churching, uh, loving to sing, pray, fellowship together, loving to be taught by God's word as brothers and sisters in Christ, but perhaps already your focus and interest has gone back to social media on your telephone. Or you're already planning your coming week. You've already left the building, in a sense, and are planning your coming week. Or, or even just wishing you were somewhere else, having come here. Now, I, I can't answer for you. You can only answer for yourself. But I tell you, for me, only a brief reflection on these sorts of things fills me with grief and and threatens to overwhelm me. Like so many Christians, I am so thankful 
for the wonderful privileges and benefits of being united with Christ, being a Christian, but against that, the awfulness of my failures, daily, hourly, weekly, monthly, yearly, awfulness of my failures attacks my assurance or confidence in salvation. I even surprise myself at times at how disobedient to God I am. The, the same Lord who has given me so much, who wants such good things for me. How, how can that be? I ask myself. Why do I get it so wrong, given that I want so much to get it right by pleasing Christ? Why is there such a gap so often in my life? And then how am I to think about that sort of daily failure? Can I be a Christian and be assured of salvation given I am so much like this? And this isn't just a one-off I'm talking about. This is a, a regular pattern I'm seeing in my life. Day after day after day. People say the only certainties in life are death and taxes. It's the old cherry, isn't it? Now we know that. We, we know that life is fragile. We, we know the insecurity of life and ourselves in life. But brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, it, when it comes to assurance of salvation... It's my delight to be able to tell you this morning that the Lord wants every believer here this morning to be absolutely sure we are accepted by him, that we are safe and secure in the Lord Jesus, in spite of our failures. Tension, struggle, failure as we'll see from this passage, is the ordinary, everyday experience of each of us as believers. In fact, I'll go so far to say, it's actually the mark of the true believer to be struggling against sin. And this is the truth we're going to see in Romans 7 and 8. Uh, and, and a truth I hope we will just soak in, lay back like that warm bath and just soak in the truths of chapter 7 and 8, and find the comfort that God intends us to find and have through them. We begin this morning by looking at the, the foundation and the context of assurance. In your sermon notes in the back of the bulletin, if you're a visitor, there's some sermon notes there. I put those back to front. I, just, I didn't realize last night they were back to front, but the foundation and then the context, that's the way it should be. And the foundation is... The foundation of assurance is understanding your position or status in Christ. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that in Christ you are both new and free. And those two things are absolutely crucial to understanding and having assurance. But to understand the argument in 14 through to 35, uh, 25 that Beck read to us, we need to grasp the argument that leads up to it, what goes before so in chapter 4 of Romans, very quick run through Romans, uh, chapter 1 to 4, Paul establishes what you once were. 
before you encountered Jesus. And uh, without touching down on lots of verses, Paul's argument is this, that you, like every other person, stood guilty before God because you failed to honor or respond to God as he deserves. And as a direct consequence, not only are you standing guilty before God, but you're standing under the wrath of God and facing his condemnation. Because the holy God takes himself very seriously. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read that God's righteous judgment is hanging over every person. It's inescapable. And when we think of, of the wrath of God, then it's not only inescapable, it's actually unimaginable to be positioned under the wrath of God. And friends, it's unbearable to think that the wrath of God would be unleashed on us. Nothing you could do, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, nothing you can do would address your guilt and make you acceptable to God. You were done for. But Paul goes on, because what you are now in Christ could not be more different, could not be more of a contrast to what you once were before Christ. And the, the gospel is that in an amazing display of love, God moved towards you even while you were desperately trying to hide from him. We're told in, in Romans chapter 3 and 4 that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus effected what we call a great exchange. Jesus took upon himself the wrath and penalty due to your sin and in exchange gave you his righteousness and his life. And all of this, we're told, was the grace of God's free and totally, it was grace, that is God's free and totally undeserved gift a gift which every believer experiences. The death and resurrection of Christ is not just a historical event. It is that, a historical fact. But it's also something that every believer experiences the results of, the benefits of. And they're absolutely life-changing results, as Paul spells them out in Romans chapter 5 and 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, since we have through the work of uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, since we have now been made acceptable to God and are counted as righteous before God because of Christ's work for us, we have peace with God. Being in Christ means peace with God. That is, totally forgiven by God, totally accepted by God, totally restored to full relationship with him totally able to enjoy God without fear of wrath. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Being in Christ means being united to him. And that union is the, the picture of a marriage union. It's such a real intimate way that we're united with Christ with the presence of the Holy Spirit actually coming into us. 
that it's not too much to say we are totally redefined, we are totally reoriented. We have a new status, a new position before God. Not pushed off to the distance and under God's wrath, but brought into the family as a full member, as a child, a beloved one. Totally new identity. Totally new status before God. And my friends, with a spirit working within us, totally new attitudes and desires created by the spirit's renewing power within us. What's the flow on effect of all this wonderful benefit of Christ's death? Well, it means this. It means that we are new people. We want now to live in service of our Savior and King. You want to live your new life in Christ with the same passion and commitment to serving God as you once exhibited in the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction apart from God. Romans 7 verse 6, being in Christ means being freed from the law. And that means being freed from trying to earn God's acceptance based on your own performance, based on your own religious efforts and actions. Why are we freed from that? Because Jesus has done everything for us in that respect. There's nothing left for us to do. All we have to do is accept what he has done on our behalf and trust him in that. So we're freed from that frenetic lifestyle of just trying to be good enough to win God's acceptance. And the result of that freedom is so immense, or the expression of that freedom is so immense, that we're now just free to get on with the business of expressing our new life as it is defined by relationship with Jesus. And powered by the Holy Spirit working within us. But what you're yet to be, amazing as all that is, what you're yet to be is even more amazing than anything I've said so far. Romans 6.23, the best is yet to come. And what is that best? Well, the word used there is glory, eternal life. Now in Christ we have relationship, acceptance. What is yet to come is glory, where we'll actually be with Jesus and perfectly be like Jesus, finally freed from every remnant and every tussle with sin. Then we'll experience the full extent of renewal when every bit of remaining sin will finally be removed. So, you're not what you once were as a Christian sitting here this morning. And thank the Lord for that. I don't mean that personally about you, but you know, just we can say that generally. That didn't come out very right, did it? Uh, <laughs> you're not, you're not what you once were. You're not yet what you will finally be. In heaven. But in the meanwhile, 
This is what Paul says. Do not underestimate the power of remaining or indwelling sin in your life. Now, here's how it works for us as Christians. Who was the villain of the peace, as it were, in our lives before we became Christians? Answer, our old, distorted, sinful, rebellious nature. It just dominated us, controlled us, defined us even. Who is the villain of the peace now as Christians? Well, in a very real sense, it's still our indwelling sinful nature. It's a real and present danger for each of us as Christians. And Paul's encouragement here then in these verses, I think, is, is put it like this. Don't underestimate the strength of your enemy. Even as you're enjoying who you are in Christ. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 13, Paul describes how indwelling sin or remaining sin works in us with such ease. He starts off the section by saying, Well, look, here's the irony God's commands are good. By virtue of being God's commands, they've got to be good. For one thing, Paul says, the goodness of God's commands is that they actually expose our sin. But, says Paul, the irony is that our old, rebellious, distorted, sinful nature can actually take God's command and twist them and manipulate them to bad effect in us. That's what he's arguing. He said something good can be actually used for bad effect in us as Christians. And then he goes on to illustrate that. So he says, our, our sinful nature is opportunistic. Now what he means by that is, it's never a spectator, it's never on holiday. It just waits for an unguarded moment and suddenly it rises up within us. And it tricks us into doing something that we know jolly well is useless and, 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 and without profit to us. Perhaps it's tricking us into going back to the tired old pathway of, to happiness and satisfaction that we had tried for years in our lives before we became Christians and suddenly it appears appealing again. Where did that come from? Our old sinful nature is just opportunistic, waiting to rise up and trick us. Our old sinful nature, Paul says here, actually provokes us to do the wrong thing. Uh, you, we know this experience. We, we might not recognize the language here, but we know the experience. You were praying. You were praying and, and concentrating and enjoying the Lord in prayer, and then suddenly you realize that somewhere along the line, your focus has actually been shifted from God onto yourself. How did that happen? How did I move so far and not even realize it was happening? You just, your focus has now become your desire to build your own kingdom when you started off with a desire to see God's kingdom built. All in the one prayer. Verse 10, our sinful nature, says Paul, even uses good things to ruin us. Now again, we know the experience of that, don't we? So for instance, we, 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 we so often find that struggle. We, we don't actually reject God's grace 
because we, we see the benefit of it far too much. But what happens is that we at the same time remain convinced that our own religious actions and efforts, in addition to God's grace, will somehow or other make us more acceptable to God and make us feel better because we're contributing to our salvation. See how our old sinful nature has just taken something good and made it so bad? Don't get rid of grace. That's really important. So we keep grace. God says, seek for obedience. And we seek for obedience, but we think it helps make us more acceptable to God. The examples are endless. And we know the pain of this experience, don't we? Every single day we know the pain of this experience. So with that understanding of the foundation, the foundation is who we are in Christ. That's what we've got to keep coming back to. Now we can step into the context of assurance. And the context of assurance, my friends, is the struggle to live an undivided life for Christ. A few years ago, there was a documentary on TV. I know most of you won't have watched it, therefore, because it's a documentary. Um, but it is, I would recommend it instead of some of the other, anyway. We won't. Um, okay, a few years ago, there's a documentary on TV called Struggle Street. Anybody remember it? Right, okay. So what it did was feature the, the, the voices and stories of people living in public housing areas in suburbs in Western Sydney. It was a very sad thing, really. Uh, it created a lot of controversy, but it was very sad. Because what it did was, it was a, on the one hand, expressing their hopes and aspirations just like the rest of us, they had their hopes and aspirations of a good life. But their hopes and aspirations were, were constantly being thwarted by their context of unemployment and crime and substance abuse. And the more you watched, the more the gap opened up. Struggle Street. Well, Paul says in these verses here, chapter 7, verse 14 onwards, Welcome to Struggle Street, the normal experience of Christians. As our hopes and aspirations of serving and obeying Jesus are constantly thwarted by that opportunistic, trick, deceitful, sinful nature that remains within us. Our aspirations have been true to who we are in Christ. Our aspirations have been intentional in choosing righteousness over sin. Our aspirations to demonstrate the mind of Christ in our everyday life. These things are constantly being ambushed or, if you like, run off the road by opportunism of our indwelling nature. The remnants of our old, rebellious, sinful nature or remaining sin will always try to get the upper hand in us. And says Paul, therefore, we must struggle to keep the mind of Christ. Now, I want you to understand that Paul's focus here in these verses is not on how many times he gets it right as opposed to how many times he gets it wrong. That's not his issue at all. He's not, he's not a bean counter. 
What he's interested in, what he's trying to establish here, is what he calls a law or a principle. Verse 21, he describes the principle. So I find it to be a law. Now what he means by that is not the law of God, it's not the Ten Commandments. It's just a principle is what the word means here. I find it to be a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The principle is that Paul recognizes two realities simultaneously in his life as a Christian. Two combatants, if you will, which are or who are at war within him. On the one hand, is what he calls his mind. And the, and the idea here is his renew, renewed mind in Christ. What he calls here his innermost being. Verse 22. His new desires, um, the new desires of his heart for obedience and worship of God. Verse 18. Paul is really clear that it's his new mind, his new desires which define him and which he wants to operate on and express. What we heard in Philippians was the mind of Christ. Paul has no illusions at all as to what, where he wants to be and how he wants to be. But on the other hand, he says, here's the principle, what he calls the law of his members, that is, his flesh in a different verse, 18 and 25. The body of death Verse 24. That is, those are all descriptions of the old, distorted, sinful self. Remnants of that. And they're in battle. And four times in these verses, Paul affirms his hopes and aspirations for obedience and faithfulness and pairs it each time with a very honest recognition of another reality, pushing him to be quite the opposite of what he wants to be. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand and I find it pushing me to do the very opposite of that thing I want to do, the very thing I know defines me. And there's the struggle. He ends up doing that which he hates and which he knows makes a mockery of the gospel. My friends, if we're going to get the foundation and context of assurance right as we move into Romans 8 over the next few weeks, we need to start by acknowledging that the struggle is real and endless. And painful as repeatedly we find ourselves choosing to act contrary to who we know we are in Christ. But in that struggle, we're not alone. Remember, actions are not always evidence of inclination, actions are not always evidence of inclination. Paul admits to confusion and frustration. He can sense it as he writes here. He knows failure and, and expresses a, st <clears throat> a strong sense of disappointment in himself. 
He knows that all too often, unguarded moments have allowed his old distorted sinful nature to get the upper hand in a particular decision or a particular situation or a particular circumstance. But he also knows that his struggle and his failures do not define him. That his actions at those points do not reflect his inclinations. He knows he is defined by newness of Christ. And the new inclination of his heart is to love and serve Jesus and to act in accordance with who he is in Jesus. So my friends, with Paul, we need to learn to talk to ourselves in the struggle. We need to say these sorts of things. Is it possible that while I'm locked in struggle, I'm actually engaged in the wrong struggle? That is, I'm still struggling to be good enough or to win acceptance before God. Well, if that's where your struggle is, then you need to say to yourself, hey, I need to remember as a Christian, as one united with Christ, I am already completely accepted and loved and free. I don't have to struggle for acceptance. That would be a wrong struggle. I need to struggle to express that newness of life in my actions. Or perhaps you say to yourself, well, am I thinking that because I'm locked in struggle and the struggle is so painful and so unrelenting that perhaps I'm not really a mature believer at all? Well, I need to tell myself then that as long as I live in this world, I am new in Christ but I'm not finally and perfectly free from sin. So struggle, in the meanwhile, is actually a confirmation of my renewed mind and confirmation of the Spirit's life within me. Because before I became a Christian, there was no struggle. There was nothing to struggle with. I just enjoyed life as it was. Or perhaps you say to yourself, well, I'm a Christian and I'm actually a bit guilty, a bit, bit un, uncomfortable here because I know nothing of the struggle he's talking about this morning. What struggle? I, I consider myself a Christian, but yeah, I get that bit, but what struggle? Well, perhaps you're not thinking about sin properly. Perhaps you're only thinking about struggling against what we might call the big sins or the unrespectable sins, adultery, Stealing and murdering, murder, and because you haven't done those things, because you're not guilty of those things, then there's nothing to struggle over. Perhaps you're not seeing the need to struggle as a believer in how you use your time, in how you use your money. Uh, perhaps you're not struggling with the notion of maintaining purity in your thought life. Well, because nobody sees that, that's not really important. And struggling perhaps to be like Jesus uh, if you're a parent or, or if you're a child or if you're a husband or if you're a wife or struggling to be like Jesus with your workmates or on the soccer field or wherever you find yourself or struggling to demonstrate the love and commitment to church and fellow believers that Christ wants me to have. 
See, sometimes we can find ourselves not struggling because we've so limited the parameters for struggle that we, we, just, we just tug ourselves out of it. We need to be talking to ourselves. And in the midst of struggle, we need to be able to say, with Paul, I really do delight in the direction of God's word in my life. I hate what I just did because it is so contrary to who I am in Christ. With God's grace and enabling, I will struggle to do it differently next time. And friends, most of all, remember, you're never alone in your struggle. Verse 24 and verse 25, so beautiful. Paul expresses frustration. I don't think it's despair. It's certainly frustration, but I don't think it's despair the way it's all put together here. Wretched man that I am. I don't think it's a, it's a mission of defeat at all. It's, a, it's an expression of need, not defeat. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this struggle? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You're never alone in the struggle. With Paul, express the cry of need and indeed the cry of confidence. Tension and struggle will continue until Christ returns or we leave this world to go to be with him. But in the meanwhile, as we heard from Philippians in the last series, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring you through the struggle. He will keep you safe in the struggle. In the face of this endless struggle, you can be confident that the Holy Spirit will hold you secure. You can be confident of your acceptance and relationship with God in spite of your failures in the struggle. Why can you be confident? Because of the work of Christ for you and in you. In the past and into the future. My friends, don't despair in the struggle. Don't give up struggling. Don't think you can avoid the struggle. But most of all, be real in the struggle. Ask for the help of your brothers and sisters. Desire the help of your brothers and sisters. Look to the Lord with confidence and joy and hopefulness. Remember, in the mark of the Christian, is not perfection, this side of heaven, but the struggle to express who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I know only too well the temptation just to give up the struggle. It's all too hard. Lord, even the thought that goes with that, easier to walk away from, from the Lord Jesus Christ than to continue this endless struggle. Lord, keep us from that, I pray. 
Help us to talk to ourselves. Help us to bring us back to a clear and sure focus on you as the ground of our acceptance and the sureness of our completion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.